Let us begin reading in verse 17. We'll read down through verse 26. Luke 5, beginning with verse 17. I hope that you will visualize the scene that is being described here in this text, that you will visualize it in your mind as we read. Luke 5, verse 17. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by who were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed a man who was taken with palsy. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of palsy. These days, I've known several who have had Bell's palsy, which is the paralysis of one of the muscles in the faces, face droop. Um, our good friend Fred Zaspel up in Pennsylvania had a bout with Bell's palsy. I called him up and asked him how he's doing. He said, well, he's sick of the palsy. So it took him about a day to get sick of it. And then, uh, he said, I understand what this man's going through. But generally, it speaks, in this case, of paralysis. A man can't walk. Okay, behold, men brought in a bed a man who was taken with palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before them, before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he, answering, said unto them, Why reason ye in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that on which he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. In fact, I've entitled the message this morning, Strange Things. Well, I'd tell you that this is one of my favorite passages. I've been doing that now for how many weeks? Saying, yeah, this is one of my favorite passages. I guess they can't all be favorites, but it seems like it. Let us put it this way. In every person's life, there are things that happen. There are what we would call defining moments in a man's life. Times when something happens that gives us a perspective on the nature of the man, on the character of the man. I think of Robert E. Lee, for instance. The two moments that I think of that define the man for me is the moment that he decided instead of being a general in the Union Army, he would resign his commission and would become a general fighting for the Commonwealth of Virginia, his state. That defined the man. And then at Gettysburg, after that horrific defeat, when he apologized to his men for what we know as Pickett's Charge, for making that blunder. 
Well, that gives you a great deal of insight into the nature of the man. There are these certain times when something like that happens that opens a window into the soul of the man, what he's all about, what makes him tick. And here is the same thing we find in the life of our Lord. Something happens that is so remarkable and so unusual that it gives us a glimpse into what makes him tick. What is it exactly that he comes into this world to do? What's he all about? And we have noted the sort of the transition here that after teaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount, defining the gospel of the kingdom, for the last couple of chapters, it seems that one miracle has fallen upon the heel of another in which we have confirmed to us the nature, the authority that he claims in preaching that sermon. If you want to know, can he back up what he claims with his power? Here you have had his miracles authenticating and confirming what he has been teaching. And oh my, what unprecedented miracles. We've had, as I say, a rash of, I don't know how many is in a rash, Sort of like you could say a slew of them. I don't know how many is in a slew, but there's a bunch of them. I mean, just one thing has followed upon the heels of the other. And notice the sheer quantity of these miracles is remarkable. And then not only the quantity, but the nature, the character, the fact that he is healed, and he's healed not only in some cases instantly. This leper, for instance, consumed with leprosy, is healed instantly. But also in certain cases where the man being healed is not even there. We had the case of the centurion servant over in another town. You can't say this is psychological manipulation or mind over matter or the placebo effect. Here's a man being healed. He doesn't know why he's being healed. And what's happened is something over in another town. We have seen, of course, the wonderful work of filling the nets of Peter and his partners in the previous message. The fact that this one even controls the elements, controls the fish that swim in the sea. All of his claims to power and authority are being authenticated by the miracles that he performs. But I want you to notice that right here in our text, something changes. Well, we've just had miracle follow upon the hill of miracle. But suddenly in this miracle... The emphasis shifts. Jesus gives us insight and a glimpse into the reason that he came. This is the big one, folks. This is what he's all about. Yes, he has given us the testimony, God's witness of his who he is and what he came to do in these miraculous signs that have preceded this. But here, Jesus would shift our focus away from the sign to what these signs are authenticating. You understand my, catch my drift? There's a difference between the sign and the thing it's signifying. Here Jesus would have and call you and I and those that were there that day to focus our attention on the main thing. Now at first it really doesn't look like he's going to be able to pull this off. In fact, It appears that what he has committed here is a serious breach of propriety. He has made a misstep. This is sort of like one of those things, you know, we're familiar now with the spectacle of these politicians running for office. It just sickens me to watch these guys. I mean, I don't care who you're for or who you're against. It's just the whole process is just so sickening. You listen to the news commentators. It sounds like some of these politicians are like broken field runners on a football field, you know, they first of all, they 
go right, and then they veer back to the center, and then they jab left for a little bit. You know, it's sort of on the, the political landscape. They're like a halfback running for the end zone. And, of course, in the middle of all of this, they're trying not to step on a landmine, not to make a misstep, because we well know that all they've got to do is get up on the wrong side of the bed one morning and open their mouth one too many times and tell us exactly how they feel, and the press will crucify them. We know that, and everybody else knows that, so they've got to be very careful and watch their words precisely and veil them so that we never really know where... They stand on anything. Well, if Jesus was a politician running for office, needing your vote, he wants to, you to vote for him to be Messiah. You could well say that his handlers probably had a heart attack when they heard what he said this day, when he said to this man laying on the floor in front of him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Oh, my. But Jesus is not running for anything. The only election that ever counted has happened a whole long time ago, and the only vote that ever counted was God's, not yours and mine. He's not here, as we say, needing your support. He's here on a mission from God, and He is doing precisely what God, His Father, has sent Him in this world to do. Well, let's look at it. Well, this is high drama, folks. If you can't, you know, get into this, it's just a, it's such an interesting story. Jesus is in a house in Capernaum teaching. Most likely it's Simon Peter's house where all of this takes place. That was sort of his headquarters while he was in Capernaum. The place is packed. Not only has he attracted the normal people that are following him around because of all the miracles he's doing, all the sick folks who have come to be healed, but I want you to notice that this day, this day in particular, the bigwigs are present. And by the bigwigs, I mean the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, the scribes and the rabbis. And they're not only those who are there from Galilee. You'll notice in our text that it says they've come from Judea and Jerusalem. In other words, we've got the big dogs here. They've come down from headquarters, from Jerusalem. They've come to check out this new fella. They've heard the rumors. They've come to see for themselves what's going on. And so this isn't just any ordinary day in the life of Jesus' ministry. The press is there, if you will. They're holding the microphones out, hoping to catch him in a mistake. In the midst of all of this, here is this poor man being brought by his friends on his bed, on a pallet. And they come upon the scene, and it becomes very clear that, you know, trying to squeeze yourself through the crowd would be one thing, but trying to squeeze yourself plus a man on a bed through this mob is just might near impossible. So suddenly it's like a light comes on. One of them says, I got it. Let's go up on the roof. And of course, those houses in that part of Palestine had those flat roofs where oftentimes in the hot weather they would sleep up there at night where it was cold, for cool at least. And so they pull the man upstairs, up the stairs to the flat roof, and they sort of guesstimate, no doubt, about where Jesus is below, and they start literally pulling the roof apart, tearing through the roof. Now, if you would, put yourself for a moment inside the house. You're one of the spectators inside. You got there early. You got a ringside seat. You're sitting there right up close where you can see everything that's going on. 
And you've been sitting there listening to Jesus teach. And suddenly you hear this ruckus. You hear this racket. You hear this distraction. And you try to figure out where is this noise coming from. And you realize, well, it's coming from up there. And just about the time you get over that shock, then you notice that somebody is literally tearing a hole in the roof. You can imagine the dirt and stuff that's falling down inside the house. And then no sooner do you see this hole open up, you see some faces looking down and a man being lowered through the hole in the roof right in front of Jesus. Very obvious. It's a sick man. A paralyzed man. He wouldn't be on a bed like that if he could walk. And he's being lowered. In other words, it becomes clear in a moment. You you sort of catch on to what's going on. That this man and his friends are so desperate to place him before Jesus that they literally have torn through the materials of the house itself to get him there. Now you talk about a dramatic moment. Every eye in the place is focused on Jesus. Here is this man paralyzed. He can't walk. And everybody anticipates the next words out of Jesus' mouth. I mean, everybody knows what he's going to say. Wouldn't you know what he's going to say? He's going to look at this fellow and says, Man, as he's done before, as he'll do later, he'll look at this man and says, Man, take up thy bed and walk. I mean, isn't that what the man needs? Isn't that what he wants? Isn't that why his friends have brought him to Jesus? And isn't this what Jesus does? Isn't this what he's all about? Fixing stuff that's broke. And what's broke? The man can't walk. And then he speaks. But oh my, what he says is not what anyone in the place anticipated that day. He looks at the man and he says, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. You know, I can almost hear the crowd. They were just pitched in excitement. The tension, you could cut it with a knife. Everybody waiting for what he's going to say. And then when he says this, they go, it's just all let down. And you can imagine that there were many there in the crowd that day that, you know, said, oh, come on. You know, I thought we were about to see something really great. You know, something we can go home and brag about. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. You know how we do. We go back and tell people about this. You know, get back with the guys at work on Monday. We tell them what we saw over the weekend. I, you know, I thought we were really going to see something, and instead, what does he do? He cops out. Because, you know, you've got a man laying there, and you say to him, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. He doesn't look any different, does he? How are you going to know? But there's another bunch there that day, the theologians. That to them, they can't believe what their ears have just heard. They say, we got him now. Oops, boy, he stepped on a land. Boy, he's going to go down in the poles now. Let's watch his count drop. Let us just get back to Jerusalem and tell him what he has said. He's blasphemed. For who can forgive sin but God 
alone. And you know what? They're exactly right. You see, sin, and I've explained this so many times, I'm almost embarrassed to say it again, but being a preacher, we never get embarrassed about saying things over again, so just bear with me. But you understand, as we have spoken so many times, that sin is viewed a lot of ways as an offense, a rebellion, a debt. A lot of different ways the New Testament throws light on this subject of sin. But I want you to notice that sin is always directed at God. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which I may sin against you. Let's say I steal something that belongs to you. But technically speaking, I've not sinned against you. I've sinned against God. God's the one who gave the law, thou shalt not steal. That's God's law, not your law. And so even when I have committed an act against you, it is still God that I'm sinning against. It's what David is talking about in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, her husband, the lie he had been living. He says to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You want to say, David, wait a minute here. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the nation? But my friend, it was God who said, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was God who said, thou shalt not kill. It was God that he had rebelled against. It was God he was in trouble with. So you understand that technically speaking, sin is not so much that which I do to you. It is that offense that I have committed in the eyes of God. It's an indebtedness, but not indebted to you, indebted to God. Now that being so, do you understand what these doctors, these rabbis, these Pharisees, these teachers, do you understand what they're saying do you understand what they're getting? It'd be like, let's say I ran into Sonny's car, totaled it. That car of yours probably worth a couple hundred dollars. You know, expensive thing at least. Yeah, and, and let's say that I've totaled his car and, I, and I'm refusing to pay. I'm refusing to make it right. I'm in his debt. And I'm not paying my debt. And then one day Christian comes over to my house and he comes to me and he says, Mark, I tell you what, I'm forgiving you that debt. I've decided to absolve you of any obligation to my father and his car. That ain't going to happen. Why? <laughs> I suspect you, you would say, wait a minute, what gives you the right to declare a man free of obligation, free of debt, to a debt he owes me? What gives you the right? And that's exactly what they're saying here. Jesus, what gives you the right to say to a man who has offended God that his sins are absolved? They are remitted. They are forgiven. They are wiped clean. They are no more. What gives you the... Who do you think you are? Well, he thinks he's God. He really does. And he either is, or he's the biggest liar, deceiver, phony, fake, that has ever walked upon this planet. He's either one or the other. And notice that they think they've got him. Wait till we get back to Jerusalem and tell them what we've heard here today. 
This will put an end to his messianic bid. As soon as the crowd, the public gets wind of this, it'll be all over. And Jesus, notice our text, knowing their thoughts, knowing exactly what they're thinking, says this. Realizing that you can look at this man, who knows if his sins are forgiven or not. Doesn't look any different. But he asks them a question, which is easier to say? Man, thy sins be forgiven or rise up and walk? Which is easier? What's the more difficult? Well, on one level, the easiest thing is to say, man, thy sins be forgiven. If you think I'm some great healer, and so all of a sudden the door's open here in the back, and you got four guys carrying a paralyzed man down the aisle here and bring him up and lay him right at my feet, obviously expecting me to heal him. What's the easiest thing to say? On one level, you could say, well, it's, man, thy sins be forgiven. I forgive you your sins. I mean, who's going to know? Who can tell? But on another level, to just say it, it's easier to say, man, thy sins be forgiven. But if you're actually talking about doing that, only God can do it. This is the most difficult thing there is possible for someone to do. So you see, it's an interesting question. Which is easier to say? And he realizes, how are you going to know? You can't look at the man. A man whose sins are forgiven doesn't really look any different from a man whose sins are not forgiven. How are you going to know? So Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin. Man, get up and walk, and up he pops. There's proof you can see confirming, authenticating the claims, the authority that I have to do that which you cannot see. Here's the visible sign to confirm the invisible, the difficult, the most difficult thing that can possibly be done, the really miraculous thing. This is small potatoes, but it's something you can see, something a sign, an authentication, the validation. And so these guys who have just accused him of blasphemy, he can't possibly be the Messiah. He can't possibly be God's Son. Just listen to what he said. Now they're standing there, stumped, stooped, scratching their heads, saying, we have seen strange things today. The word strange in the Greek language is an interesting word. It's the word paradoxus. We get our word paradox. From it. We have seen paradoxical things. You know what a paradox is? It's a seeming contradiction. You see two things and you just can't put them together. I just don't understand how these things can be. I don't understand how if this man is a blasphemer, he can do these things. You see what they're trying to resolve in their minds. It's like Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night saying, We know that you're a man sent from God because no man could do these miracles except God was with him. We've seen him do something that only God could do. And yet we've heard him say something 
that to us cuts him off from all possibility of being from God. How in the world can we resolve these paradoxes in our minds? Well, I want you to just, in closing, and you know that means absolutely nothing, (laughs) I want you to think about what has just happened. Do you not see that Jesus is in what's going on here? Drawing your attention away from the small things to the main thing. I mean, you really think about it. What is the real reason that he came into this world? Why? What is he doing here? It's obviously not just to heal men. May I point out to you that every person he ever healed would get sick again? It's clearly that he didn't come just to cast out devils. In fact, we have the scripture that sort of leads us to believe that many of those out of whom the devils were cast, the clean house, the devils came back, and the last state of them was seven times worse than the first. It wasn't just to feed the hungry. Blessing the loaves and feeding the multitudes. Folks, they got hungry the next day again. It wasn't just to raise the dead, as miraculous as that is. May I point out to you that Lazarus isn't still here. He's dead. He died again. These are wonderful, miraculous signs, but they are temporary. And they are confined to this life. Or if you want to know why he came, go back to this naming. When the angel tells Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this other is signs, authenticating miracles that he can do the big one. The one that you and I so desperately need. You see, this man, sick of the palsy, as pitiful and pathetic as he might be in our eyes, he has a need that dwarfs that need. And it is to that main need that Jesus turns his attention. Do you understand, my friend, what difference is it going to make in the long run that you're healed of your arthritis? I mean, I'm not denying that God can't heal in our day. Please don't misunderstand me. But may I just point out that when you draw your last breath on your deathbed, what difference did it make in the long run? That you managed to go through life absolutely healthy? You're still going to die. You're still going to face eternity. What difference will it make in the long run whether you lived your life prosperous, wealthy, When you draw that last breath, what difference will it make that you were psychologically adjusted, happy throughout all of this life when you draw that last, when your heart beats that last time? What difference will it make that you spoke in tongues, that you were slain in the Spirit, that you got happy? What difference will it make when you face God in the judgment? My friend, there's just one thing, one thing that's going to matter in that day. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, 
ye shall die in your sins if ye believe not that I am he. They're talking about who's the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Ye will die in your sins. My friend, that's the one thing you can't afford to do. To die in your sins is to be hopelessly, irrevocably, helplessly lost for all eternity. The one thing that you and I need... Whatever else we may need, and there may be many things that we look around and say, yeah, I really need this. But there's just one thing that's needful, says Jesus. One thing. You remember Martha was all fretting away in the kitchen, and Mary was sitting out there at the feet of Jesus, and Martha getting all upset because she doesn't have to do all the work, and Mary's out there sitting and listening to Jesus. Now, may I say, normally, uh, we, we might could sympathize with Martha. But, but there's a point here that we would say, wait a minute. When it comes down to really what is necessary in life, what is the one essential thing that you cannot live without, Mary's out there seeking that, and that's what Jesus points out. One thing is needful, and Mary has sought that good thing. She's after that one thing. You know, let all that other stuff go. Get this one thing. Oh, I began to see that uh, this is the one thing. That sets Jesus' ministry apart from all the rest. Oh, there were prophets before that did miracles. Elijah, Elisha, their ministries were full of miracles. Of course, Jesus is better. It really was. I mean, it just doesn't take a genius to figure out that his miracles are a whole lot better than theirs. I mean, you look back in Second Kings chapter 4 and you see how they got all excited because Elisha had a bunch of prophets, a hundred of them all holed up in a place and they were hungry and a fellow brought ten loaves of barley. No, twenty I believe it was. Twenty barley loaves. And he says, now take these and feed these prophets. And one of them, they thought this is phenomenal. Twenty barley loaves fed a hundred prophets. Amazing miracle that Elisha has performed. Or God through Elisha, we should say. And then along comes Jesus and takes five loaves and two fishes and feeds a 5,000 men. We had our hands full feeding five hungry men yesterday. <laughs> 5,000 men from five loaves and two fishes. And when it's all said and done, the disciples went out. Each of them had a big old basket, and they picked up enough scraps to fill each of their baskets. You understand what I'm saying? Whatever happened in the miracles of the prophets before Jesus, when He comes along, He blows them away. But my friend, go back and search the prophets and see if you can ever find a prophet who stands before a man and says, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Who claims to have the power in His Word to absolve a man of his sins. Oh, you see, there's something else going on here. It's not just that Jesus comes to undo the effects of the fall, the side effects. He comes to undo the thing itself, the main cause. I said Wednesday night, I had this terrible illustration. I'm going to use it again, see if I can prove upon it. I said, basically, men in this world are like the passengers on the Titanic. They've all put their hope on this... The world looks at this ship we're on, and it's big, strong, unsinkable. And we shout to the people on board that huge, mighty, 
unsinkable vessel that they are doomed. Utterly doomed. And the unsinkable vessel is going to sink on its maiden voyage. Can't even get one trip before it's at the bottom of the sea. Flee. But you know what people reply? Well, I'm, a, I'm riding first class. What do you mean get off? I've got a good berth here. And then there's others that are riding second. There's some down there in the hold, you know, that are just paying the minimal fare to get across. And some of them are perhaps even stowaways. They're hiding out in the whatever here and there. You see, that's the way we are. We, we think that because I'm riding first class and I'm better than you. The point is, really, does it matter? In the final analysis, is it going to matter? The sink, the ship is going to sink. And so it is that Christ comes to take care of the one thing that we cannot do for ourselves. It doesn't matter whether you're the best of men, like a Nicodemus, chief of the Pharisees, or whether you're the worst of people, the woman at the well in Samaria. They were so different in so many respects, but this they had in common. They desperately needed Jesus. I got a whole list. I got to stop because we got a lot to do this morning. But I had a whole list of verses where I was showing you that this idea of the remission of sins permeates the preaching of the apostles. If you ask, what did Jesus come to do? The apostles in their preaching, Peter, look at his sermon on the day of Pentecost, repent and believe, be baptized for the remission of sins. His second sermon, repent that your sins may be forgiven when the times of refreshing come from the Lord. All all the way through the book of Acts, you'll see it. I think perhaps the most obvious place is in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about the wonderful thing God has done for us in salvation, how He translated us. These are His words. He translated us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's like, here's the masterpiece. Here's the icing on the cake. Here's the pentacle of it all. We even have forgiveness of sins. You know, I'm glad that's what this is all about because if Jesus just came to deal with some of the side effects of this thing, you understand what mockery that would be. It'd be like giving a man drowning a cup of cold water. A fellow dying of cancer, slipping him an aspirin. A hungry man in a house giving him a meal as his house is on fire and about to burn down on top of him. What, what difference are those things going to make in the long run if the main thing is not addressed? There's a bigger problem. And he does not sugarcoat it. He does not minimize it. He does not glamorize it. He does not sanitize it. He comes into this world to give himself a ransom for sinners, to offer himself up to God as a sacrifice for his people, to shed his own blood that justice might be satisfied. He didn't come, my friend, to give you a chance to be saved. He didn't come to enable you to do what was necessary to be pleasing to God. He came to enable God to have the grounds to declare a sinner forgiven. Oh, we have it so backwards in our day that somehow He came so I'd have a chance. So I could do something. 
to lower the demands down to something that I could meet, to lower the, the price. Oh no, my friend, he didn't come to do any of that. The price is still as high, as infinitely high as it ever was. He came to pay it, to pay it in our stead, to suffer in our stead, to die as a substitute, so that when he dies, it's as if we have died and that eternally. It took an infinite person to pay the infinite price that I owed to an infinite God. A price that should I have to pay it, I must pay for eternity forever and ever. But all this infinite person, the divine Son of God, in His death there is merit, there is satisfaction to an offended law. He saves us, as we said a moment ago, from sin. Not in sin. That's another misconception of our day. That Jesus came to uh, save me so I can be a comfortable sinner now. I can sin with impunity. I've got amnesty. I can sin it up. Don't have to worry about any consequences. Sin with a clear conscience. Sin without any fear of future and eternal judgment. My friend, His mission is to save us from sin. From its penalty, that the law has nothing to accuse us of when we stand before the bar of God's judgment, but also from sin's power. That the grip that sin had, you see, we have this notion that we're free, that we choose to sin. We choose when we sin and how we sin and so forth. We don't understand the fact that it's really the other way around. Sin has got us, not we've got sin. And this thing that we think we choose and we freely choose, we, we've got a hold of it and we can't let go. It's like getting a hold of a current, you know, electrical wire. It's shocking you and you say, you need to turn loose of that. Yeah, I know I need to turn loose of it, but I can't. Who's got what? I've got it and it's got me. Sin is like that. And I look around this room and I asked you today how many of you sitting here at one time was the absolute slave of sin. Sin was your master. I see Barry shaking his head and I know a little bit about Barry's life before he was converted. And I know that you could say, yes, that's exactly what was going on. The devil came along and said, I need a volunteer to sin. And Barry's hand went up. I need a volunteer. I need somebody to cuss that fella out. Barry said, I'll do it. You can use my mouth. Yielding his instruments, the body as it were, to be an instrument of sin. Here am I, send me. That's what he said. And I'm just picking on Barry. My friend, that's the testimony of so many in this room today. Once you were under, completely under sin's grip, under its dominion, and Christ has set you free. Free from its power. Free even from its presence. You remember we talked about catching fish last week. You that were here. How Jesus helped Peter catch all those fish, and how this was a sign that Peter would catch men, men fish. But you know, we had a rule when we went fishing, every fish you catch, you got to clean. Every fish Christ catches, He cleans. Oh, you see it everywhere. Titus chapter 2, where Christ has redeemed for Himself a peculiar people sanctified us that we be a people zealous of good works. He's cleaning. 
constantly cleaning, purifying His people. That's what we're celebrating today. As we turn our attention to this table, we're celebrating the main thing. I know that in Christianity, what passes for Christianity today, in large number of churches these days, the fuss, the emphasis, the focus is on anything but this. I was down at the Baptist book, well, what used to be the Baptist bookstore, Lifeway it is now this past week. I was just sort of rummaging up and down the aisles looking at the books that were available. And yeah, they've still got a few Bibles and theological work over in the corner. But you know what the shelves are absolutely filled with these days? Christian psychology. Christian finance. Uh, well, you, you can go check it out for yourself. Look at what 90% of the merchandise sitting on the shelf is all about. My friend, it's not about this. This is in the corner. It's this other stuff that's hot. This is what you sell. My friend, and I know we ourselves, we're just as guilty as others. We get our minds on anything and everything. But oh, today, can we turn our attention back, back to the central thing. What it's all about. My friend, if this is not true, if this is not real, if what Jesus said to this man in fact did not come to pass, then let's just chalk it up and go home. We're just here to have a good time. I can think of a whole lot of better places to have a good time. If we're just here to affect some social change in our community, there's a whole lot more economical and financially feasible ways of doing that than the church. If we're just here to have some friends, my friend, we can pick a whole lot better. I mean, I look around at this bunch, and we're just sort of a ragtag bunch, are we? You know, what, what, you want to just rub shoulders with the upper crust, you better go somewhere else. It's a lousy place to do it. My friend, the one thing that we're to be about is the one thing that Christ came to do. It is those strange things. I want to see strange things. I want to see strange faces sitting in our congregation. Now, I don't mean strange and peculiar or weird, you understand? But strange in the sense that I never would have dreamed that you would be sitting here. How many of you can say that? I am a strange person in that sense. Never dream for a moment that I would be sitting here today. There was a time in my life that this was the last place on earth I ever wanted to be. Would have dreamed I would ever be. Man, we got some strange folks here today. Do you understand what I mean? I want to see some strange behavior. You understand what I mean? Man, I don't understand this. Here was this person that at one time in their life, all they could think about was going out on the weekend getting drunk. All they could think about was chasing women. All they could think about was having a good time and partying. That drove them. That's what made them tick. That's what they were all about. And here today they sit. And it's other things that drives them. Other things. Oh my, how strange. How paradoxical. As the old prophet says, you know, I'm amazed at everything. I'm amazed at God, amazed at Jesus. I'm amazed at myself. And strange desires, new things, 
have come to replace the old things. And that I can say with absolute veracity, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All has become new. Strange people live in a strange way. The world looks at you and says, man, that's strange. Peter writes, that first Peter we were looking at this morning said, the world thinks it's strange that you don't go with them anymore. Used to. You always ran with that crowd. Now they look at you and say, man, you're strange. What's happened to you? You're weird. Don't understand you. My friend, I don't understand it either. I just want to see something strange. I want to see something that God and God alone can do. If man can do it, it's not all that strange. Not all that amazing. But it's something only God can do. My. I want to see something head scratching. Something that just blows me away. May God bless us in that pursuit. Let's remember the main thing this morning. Several warnings that must be given before we approach this table. We are told in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11 that as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. We give testimony of something here. And wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, there's a lot of things that Paul is saying there in these brief verses about how we should come to this table. First of all, this is a table for Christians. It is for the body of Christ. It is for those who are joined to Him in saving faith. It is not for unbelievers. Part of this idea of not discerning the Lord's body lies in that fact that we are discriminating. Now, we don't discriminate against you, you understand. We tell you to discriminate, be discriminating. We tell you to judge your own heart. Are you in the faith or are you not? Are you following Christ or are you not? I mean, it should be a simple question if salvation is what we talked about today, this strange thing that happens to us so that we're a stranger now to everybody. Everybody around us look at us and they scratch their heads and say, this is the same person that we used to know. You'd think it'd be pretty obvious that we would know whether we are Christians or whether we are not. So first of all, let's be discerning as far as the Lord's body. And then let's be discerning in the sense of how we partake of it. The Corinthians were guilty of violating the very spirit of the ordinance by the way they partook of it. We do little things. We have uh, our deacons become our servants. There are waitresses and waiters as we partake of this. Now, that's a little thing. But it's something that's symbolic in the fact that we put in office those men whom we perceive as servants. 
and working your way up in the church is actually working your way down. He that would be great among you, let him be your servant, your minister, literally in Greek, your deacon. And then notice we all wait for one another. That's one thing that Paul criticized the Corinthians. They were, uh, everybody sort of soups on. Everybody made a mad dash, make sure they get theirs for everybody else. Now we don't give you much. He says, if you want a big meal, you got houses to eat in. That's not the purpose of this meal. It's an ordinance. It's symbolic. But we do wait on one another. We're not trying to beat somebody to the punch, get the good stuff where they can. Now again, that's a little thing. But it's symbolic of the big thing. You see what I'm saying? Paul is condemning the Corinthians for the very way they're partaking of the ordinance itself in undermining what it's all about. That there should be a harmony between the way we partake of this and partaking of this symbol. There should be a harmony between that and the way we live our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about such things, it makes me want to stop and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to manifest you. I want to give a good witness. I believe you've done something in my heart, but I fail to show that so often. Let us pause. Let's pray. Let's ask God. Search us, try us, know our hearts. If you be in the faith, we invite you to partake of this with us.